welcome to True Crime IRL. I'm Kelly Barron's Brink, and this is part two of the Iowa Hotel Homicides. If you haven't listened to the last episode yet, part one, well then, you're not going to know what the heck is going on. So, go back and listen to part one first. Go on, go, do it now, bye-bye, go, go, go. And if you did already listen, well then, you know that we left off in the Des Moines, Iowa area in 2002 when serial killer Donald Piper had just been found guilty of the murders of Patty Lang and Zurieta Sakonovich. And he's serving two life sentences for those murders right now. He was also the main suspect in the cold case now of Mariana Redravon's murder, but unfortunately there was not enough evidence in that case to move forward with an arrest or a trial. So let's go back to the timeline of these three murders. Patty Lang was murdered in room 732 of the West Des Moines Holiday Inn where she was staying in 1993 while she was relocating from Denver to Des Moines for a career change. Four years later, in 1997, Zurieta Sakonovich, a hotel maid, was murdered during her shift at work in the Budgetel Inn in the hotel room that she was cleaning. The following year, 1998, Mariana Redravon was also murdered at the Walnut Creek Inn where she worked as a maid during her housekeeping shift. Donald Piper was a serial killer preying on women in the Des Moines area. He stabbed and he strangled his victims as well as bound their hands and feet. Knowing what we know about him, about his desire to kill, his love of torture, his power-hungry hatred of women, do you really think he stopped at just three victims? And do you really think he took a break from 1993 until he killed again in 1997? I know I don't. And here's why. During the time Donald Piper was actively killing, there were a lot of women being stabbed and strangled in the Des Moines, Iowa area. Killed in the same way Donald Piper killed his confirmed victims. Many of those murder cases are still unsolved to this day. We're going to discuss some of those right now. As I said before, August 23rd, 1993 was when Patricia Lang was murdered in her hotel room. In the last episode, we talked about her murder and we talked about how Donald Piper was finally convicted of that murder after her death in 2001. Patty was bound, tortured, brutally raped, and strangled with a coat hanger. This would be the first in a string of brutal murders against women. And like I said, we know he killed two for sure, probably three, but there are many more that he may have also been linked to. So let's move on from 1993 on to 1994. 
On November 25, 1994, the partially burned body of Patricia Howlett was found at a Des Moines ballpark after she had been missing for several days. Howlett had been out running errands, and she just never returned home. Howlett had been brutally beaten and raped, her throat had been slashed, and her body had been partially set on fire. A year after this murder, police received a tip over the phone regarding who may have been involved. The phone call was made by the girlfriend of 25-year-old Jerry Lee Proctor. She claimed that Proctor spoke of some of the details of the crime and implicated himself in that murder. Being no stranger to the criminal justice system and having had a very rough and sketchy past, police brought Proctor in for questioning, thinking he could be a suspect, and he fully cooperated. When he came in for questioning, Proctor confessed the following story. On the night of Howlett's disappearance, he was in a West Des Moines shopping center parking lot when he witnessed a woman being attacked by an assailant with a knife. As Proctor approached to investigate, the assailant reportedly stabbed Howlett in the leg. Proctor confronted the man, who responded by pulling a gun and forcing Proctor and the woman into the woman's car. Proctor said he was ordered to drive to a ballpark near his mother's home. He claimed the unknown man then led the two to a secluded area, beat them both to the ground, and ordered Proctor to sodomize Howlett. When the act was done, the man slit Patricia Howlett's throat. Proctor then drove the unknown man back to the shopping center where he was able to escape. Jerry Lee Proctor admitted that several days later, he returned to the ballpark, doused Patricia Howlett's body with gasoline, and set her on fire. He claimed this was an attempt to destroy DNA evidence connecting him to the scene. Despite pursuing several leads, authorities never found that unknown man. And the state charged Proctor with first-degree murder based on his confession. Police obviously did not believe Proctor's story. And after all, he had a history of numerous crimes in his past, including assaults against his mother and his girlfriend. And in 1992, Proctor was also charged with attempted rape. But did this mean he was lying about his story? What if he was telling the truth? What if an anonymous assailant really did kidnap Patricia Howlett and Jerry Lee Proctor and kill her and escape without a trace, only to lay the blame on Proctor. After all, it did seem as though police never would have solved this case until Proctor told his story and cooperated with them. Before that, they had no leads. At trial, Sarah Wonderland, who was Proctor's girlfriend, testified that around the time of Howlett's murder, Proctor came home with blood-stained blue jeans claiming to have been in a fight. 
He discarded the jeans in a grocery store dumpster. Proctor then had her drive him to a shopping center where he looked for a lost identification card in a white four-door Ford. She recalled that later media reports of Patricia Howlett's disappearance described her white four-door Ford Escort found in the Westtown Shopping Center. The description matched the location, the time frame, and the type of car Proctor had searched. When the jurors retired to deliberate, it was discovered that an investigative profile report had been included in the evidence given to the jury, even though it had been ruled inadmissible. Following a hearing, the court instructed jurors to disregard that, even though they had already seen it. The jury returned a verdict finding Proctor guilty of first-degree murder. The court denied Proctor's motion for a new trial. Jerry Lee Proctor spent 24 years in prison until he finally committed suicide by hanging at the age of 42 at the Anamosa State Penitentiary. Proctor was a confirmed criminal, that's true. He had a shady, sketchy past, and he was no saint. But did he die in prison after a wrongful conviction? Could there really have been someone else responsible for Patricia Howlett's death? And could that person have been Donald Piper? What do you guys think about this? I think it's feasible that Donald Piper could have been that perpetrator who remained anonymous and killed Patricia Howlett. Stranger things have happened. Jerry Lee Proctor's story was incredible and a little out there. But true crime fans, think about some other stories you've heard with some similarities. How about the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo? He frequently went after both men and women at the same time, and some of those stories also could have seemed very incredible at the time. And this story that Jerry Lee Proctor told reminded me a lot of some of the Golden State Killer's victims' stories. Jerry Lee Proctor always maintained his innocence. And I just can't help but think, maybe he really was. So that was 1994. And now we're going to fast forward a bit to August 8th, 1995. This is when Connie Jo Bodensteiner's body was found locked in a basement storage bin at a Southside Des Moines apartment complex. An autopsy showed the 24-year-old had been strangled. A maintenance worker discovered the body, which had a belt around the young mother's neck. Bodensteiner's mother said her daughter had run into problems before she was killed. She had been arrested four times on prostitution charges and once on a drug-related charge. Bodensteiner and her husband, Michael Bodensteiner, had a very stormy marriage and they separated back in 1992. Their five-year-old daughter lived with Connie Joe's parents, where she could have some sense of stability in her life. Authorities initially explored a possible connection with Bodensteiner's murder and that of a woman named Angela Buck, whose body was found the day after Bodensteiner's body was found. 
both women had records of prostitution in their past, and they had both once worked for the same John. It was Friday, August 11th, 1995, when two men hunting for turtles discovered the body of Angela Buck in a ditch near a creek. They saw the body laying about six feet from the water. Her body, clad in a greenish halter top, jean shorts, and muddy white socks, but no shoes, lay just below a short bridge in a wooded area. The men went to a nearby farmhouse to call the police, and later provided officials with written statements. Angela's body lay in a fetal position, and there was no apparent attempt to hide the body because it could easily be seen from the bridge. A witness said he didn't notice many footprints in the area, but that it had appeared that a nearby pool of shallow water may have had a trace of blood. Twenty investigators worked the scene until nightfall that Friday, searching the creek, fields, and ditches, and carrying away bags of what appeared to be evidence. The Blackhawk County Sheriff's Office announced it was handling the case as a homicide, but didn't identify any suspects or a motive. They stated that they weren't sure if the body had been dumped at the creek or if the death occurred there and no arrests have been made in the case. Sheriff's officials used fingerprints and dental records to identify Buck. They believed she had been dead not more than two days and released her identity on Sunday after contacting her relatives. State medical examiner Dr. Francis Garrity conducted the autopsy and ruled the cause of death as a single gunshot wound to the chest. The manner of death was ruled a homicide. Officials said Buck did not have a permanent address, but was from the Waterloo area. Her mother had passed away three years previously, but when she was still living, Angela Buck resided with her mother. She was voted as the Evansdale Junior Miss in 1970 at age 12. She played the violin with her school orchestra, and she loved horseback riding. She had worked as a nurse's aide but recently had been attending school to become a radio announcer. After the death of her mother, though, she began to drift. Some would describe her as a lonely person with a fast-paced lifestyle. She had emotional problems and she got mixed up with the wrong crowd. She was a mother, but her lifestyle led her to have trouble taking care of her children and she sent them to live with their father. This contributed to the sadness in her life and sent her into a downward spiral. As I mentioned before, just three days before finding Angela Buck's body, officials found the body of 24-year-old Connie Jo Bodensteiner in the basement storage unit of a Des Moines Southside apartment. Now, Bodensteiner had been strangled. Both women, Angela and Connie Jo, had records of prostitution and at one time had worked for this man named Greg Peterson, a John who operated a prostitution service out of his mobile home. This man, turns out, was beaten to death by a rival John a year before the two women were murdered. Authorities investigated possible connections between the murders 
but later they said they were not connected because the manner of death was different in each case. Before officials had formally identified Angela Buck's body, they did their due diligence to confirm that it was not the body of a Mason City woman who went missing just six weeks earlier. Anchorwoman Jody Husentrout was 27 when she'd been abducted from her Mason City apartment in July of 1995. Her case made national news and although there is evidence and even a few theories, it's still unsolved to this day. Now, we will definitely delve into Jody Husentrout in later episodes of True Crime IRL. But for now, yes, officials were thinking it could have possibly been her, but no, it was not her. And Jody Husentrout's case is not related to the cases we're talking about today. But she was yet another woman who went missing in Iowa during this time frame. So as the summer of 1995 moved into fall, there was another murder. On November 22, 1995, the body of 47-year-old Martha Erickson was found in the shallow water of Avon Lake near Des Moines. She had been beaten and stabbed to death. Since her body was submerged in water for a day, it's not known whether or not she was also sexually assaulted because any DNA would have been washed away. Martha had been on her way to a dance, and she was very excited about that. She was excited to connect with friends and see acquaintances there. Martha Erickson had a passion for helping others, and she often attended Alcoholics Anonymous meetings to support others who were struggling, even though she herself was not an alcoholic. Did that passion for helping others play a part in Martha Erickson's death? At AA meetings, anonymity is extremely important for attendees. After all, anonymous is part of the organization's name. Those who attend the meetings are able to gain support without giving their full or even their real name. Had a predator been lurking in the shadows of these meetings, just waiting to stalk their next victim? Maybe. But there's another very strange aspect to Martha Erickson's murder. She wasn't the first woman in her circle of friends to be murdered. She was the second. And then just two months later, there would be a third. Susan Kirsten, whose severely burned body had been found two months earlier near Iowa City, was a friend of Martha Erickson's. And Donna Lee Marshall, who was found shot in the head in her mobile home in Iowa City in January 1996, was also a friend of Martha Erickson's. Three female friends, all murdered within five months of each other. Coincidence? It can't possibly be. But if you think this was a coincidence, then I've got some oceanfront property in Arizona to sell you. We'll talk after the show. I accept PayPal, Venmo, MasterCard, or Visa. So, what do you think homicide detectives had to say about the relationship between all three of these murders? Well, basically the same thing they said about all the other women who had been murdered. 
Our investigation has yielded nothing substantial, and we have found no connection between the murders. So, moving on to 1996. This was a much quieter year for the Des Moines, Iowa area, and whew, it's about time. But then, August 28, 1997, it started again. Julie Davis resided in Cedar Rapids, Iowa with her family, but she frequently traveled to the Des Moines, Iowa location of the company she worked for. Julie was actually in the process of moving from her small Des Moines office into another building in downtown Des Moines. She was very excited about her new office location, but she was found murdered that same evening in the back room of her new office. Julie had been stabbed several times and her throat had been slashed. There was blood everywhere, as you can imagine, so police were just sure that there would be some sort of evidence like maybe a shoe print or a fingerprint. But there was literally nothing. Not one shred of evidence. And since she had luckily not been sexually assaulted, there was no DNA to obtain from her body either. This seemed like a crime of passion, full of rage. And you might assume that it was the husband, but no, he actually had an alibi and he was completely cleared as a suspect. He had nothing to do with his wife's murder, and neither did the co-worker who found her body. That person was also cleared. So, who killed Julie? What was the motive? Did she meet her untimely death by simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time? Or was she another victim of Donald Piper? The sad part is, we don't know. Julie Davis's murder is still, over two decades later, unsolved. No leads, no evidence, and just like Mariana Redrabon and so many of the other women, Julie's murder was seemingly committed by a professional. Julie's cold case is frequently grouped together in the list of probable murders committed by Donald Piper in the 1990s, although detectives never were able to solve it. So Julie was another victim who would not gain the justice she deserved and whose family would not be able to gain closure. And the next murder? Well, it would come only a week later. And it's one we discussed in the last episode, part one of the Iowa Hotel Homicides. Zuriata Sakonovich was a young immigrant woman working as a hotel maid. She was murdered in one of the rooms she was cleaning. Donald Piper was convicted of her murder in 2002, and he's serving a life sentence in prison for that murder now. And like I said before, if you haven't listened to part one, you should not be listening to part two, so go back now and listen. And you can hear the details of Zuriata's life and death. But it would be just one month later when another Des Moines area woman was brutally murdered. Arliss Ponce was a 42-year-old mother of three who ran an in-home daycare. She was a sweetheart, she got along with everyone, and had no enemies. She took care of kids for a living and had a very happy family. However, she was found stabbed to death in her home on the afternoon of October 8, 1997. 
She was actually found by her own children when they came home from school that day. The home was locked, and when they rang the doorbell with no answer, the kids looked through the window to find mom's body laying on the floor. They ran to get help from the neighbors, but unfortunately, Arliss was gone long before police ever arrived to the scene. Police would later mention that Donald Piper had called Arliss earlier that week regarding a babysitting job, but had never actually shown up to the home to discuss it further, and he never called back. They also said that the correlation never amounted to anything strong enough to pursue. Are you kidding me? Can we assume Donald Piper murdered Arliss Ponce too? I think it's a safe bet, although Arliss's case is yet another one of Iowa's cold cases. The grief for Arliss's husband was profound, but he would say years later that he just had no choice but to keep moving forward for their children. He stated he always felt like his kids were missing out on having their amazing mother, and he never felt like he was half the parent Arliss was to them. He was basically a broken man after his wife's tragic death, and it's very sad to read his quotes from newspaper articles over the years. What do you think happened to Arliss Ponce? And what do you think about Donald Piper calling Arliss the week before for a babysitting job? Are you screaming in your head right now like I am? I feel like there's no possible way Donald Piper did not commit this murder. He was basically on a roll in the late 1990s, and he was getting better at what he did, getting better at leaving behind no evidence. I really feel like there's a connection here, and newspapers tend to agree, because over the years they have always included Arliss Ponce's case in a list of possible murders committed by Donald Piper, and it's my opinion that he did. So just about three months after Arliss Ponce's murder, there was another murder. In January 1998, 15-year-old hotel maid Mariana Redrivan was murdered in her place of work, in the hotel room she was cleaning. As we discussed last time in part one, Mariana was an Ecuadorian immigrant who gained employment by presenting false identifications stating she was older, and as just a child, she supported her entire family on her housekeeping wages. There was no DNA evidence left behind at Mariana's crime scene. And although Donald Piper was never charged with Mariana's murder due to lack of evidence, he has always been unofficially linked to the case. We can't say without a doubt that Donald Piper is guilty of her murder, but it is quite probable. So, are you seeing a pattern yet? You think it's over yet? No, it's not. Another month, another murder. Just one month after Mariana was murdered cleaning the hotel room, 44-year-old Susan Hagen's body was found under a bridge along the Des Moines River by a man walking his dog in February 1998. Her body was found almost totally nude and she had sustained burns all over her body. Officials were unable to determine whether she had been sexually assaulted, but being found nude, I think it's a safe bet. Susan was employed as a bookkeeper, and she was a member of the Congregational Church of Christ. She was also a mother of five grown children, three sons and two daughters. Police described her assailant as, quote, a very demented human being, unquote. 
but otherwise there isn't a lot of information available regarding Susan or the details of her cold case. One thing to note though is just two days after Susan was found, another murder victim was also found in the exact same spot. This time it was a male victim and he had been shot. His name was Kai Van Long and police believed that he had been shot and his body had been dumped there after the fact. And guess what? His freaking murder is also still unsolved. It's doubtful that his murder was related to all the other murders of women in the area in the 1990s, but it is interesting that he was found just two days later in the exact same spot as another murder victim. And it looks like there's one thing we do know, and that is, if you felt like randomly murdering someone in the 1990s in the Des Moines, Iowa area, well, you know, have at it! It was basically a real-life version of the movie The Purge, except that you were free to kill as much as you wanted, not just one night of the year, but any time, any time at all. No jail time, guys. Consequences? Ah, what are those? As I'm recording this podcast, you guys, I am in disbelief that there is just victim after victim after victim after seemingly never-ending victim. Des Moines, Iowa is thought of as very safe. It's in the Midwest. It's not New York or LA. Stuff like this just rarely happens here. And I can only imagine that investigators probably felt like they had something on their hands that was way beyond their control and beyond their scope of expertise. Given the fact that most of these murders are unsolved to this day, it is safe to say Des Moines, Iowa detectives may have been slightly out over their skis on these cases. I'm not trying to be a jerk by saying that. It's just the truth. Let's break down the similarities of these murders. So first off, they all occurred in the Des Moines, Iowa area. The victims were women, with the exception of Kai Van Long, but we're not even going to count that case here because the MO seems totally different, and he was most likely killed somewhere else and dumped at that location after the fact. Many of these victims were bound at the wrists. All of these crimes were full of rage. The victims were beaten, they were stabbed, some were shot, most were found partially nude and had been sexually assaulted. How about the dates? Several of the murders occurred in August and November as if there's kind of a pattern or some significance with those months. These murders also started slower but then began to increase in frequency as the years went on. If these murders were all committed by Donald Piper, it makes sense that only two of them had DNA evidence linking him to the crime, because as he killed more often, he became better at remaining anonymous and covering his tracks. The final murder in this list occurred in February of 1998. As we discussed in part one of the Iowa Hotel homicides, Donald Piper had been basically under constant surveillance from the police starting about nine months after that, around April of 1999. He was arrested for Patty Lang's murder and convicted in 2001, and then convicted of Zurieta Sakonovich's murder in 2002. So what do you think about Donald Piper? He killed Patty Lang, he killed Zurieta Sakonovich, 
We're so certain he killed Mariana Redravan, but what about all these other women that were killed in the Des Moines area in the 1990s? Was it him, or was it purely a coincidence? Now, remember that Donald Piper was the chief maintenance engineer at a large hotel where he killed Patty Lang in 1993. And being an expert, Piper actually contributed to a short article online consisting of hotel safety tips for travelers in what was his first and only prison interview. This interview was granted with West Des Moines injury attorney Christopher A. Johnston. And this is pretty sick, having a hotel serial killer give you advice on how not to be killed while you're staying at a hotel. But Donald Piper is a pretty sick individual. Piper was residing at the Fort Madison, Iowa Maximum Security Penitentiary when he agreed to an in-person interview with attorney Christopher A. Johnson. In this interview, he provided what he believes to be a few of the most important things hotel guests can and should do to help protect themselves while traveling. Piper, who continues to steadfastly claim innocence for these crimes, willingly provided this information with the hope that even just one person might benefit. So without further ado, let's go over the list of safety measures that Donald Piper, convicted hotel serial killer, thinks you should take in order to stay safe on your next trip. Number one, when a couple is traveling together, they should stay together. Number two, never leave your hotel key in view if it has the room number or hotel name on it. Number three, when you begin the check-in process, tell the desk clerk not to say your room number out loud. Number four, ask the hotel front desk whether the video cameras in the hotel are real and functioning or if they're disabled or broken. Number five, if traveling alone, never prop your door open for any reason such as getting ice. And I hate to give all my secrets away, but that's something I do a lot and probably shouldn't do. Number six, park as close to the hotel doors as possible. And number seven, request a room near the front desk. I'm sure we're all going to sleep just a little bit better tonight with those words of wisdom from serial killer Donald Piper. Because of him, the 1990s were a little scary in the Des Moines area, so it's a good thing he's right where he deserves to be. I still have a haunting feeling about this case and about these unsolved cold cases of the Des Moines, Iowa women in the 1990s, and chances are this is a topic we will revisit in the future because it just doesn't rest well with me. And I would love to know what you guys think. If you get a chance, go over to our Instagram page at truecrimeirl. There you can find pictures related to this case, and I would love to hear your thoughts. So give me a like and a shout. And until next time, lock your doors, people. Just lock them. It's not that hard. Just lock those doors. Seriously. Bye-bye.